Here they all are now, the Irish in Sweden, back after their Christmas break. Lads, at this stage, I reckon I'm a good 70% chocolate at this stage, right? Because this, uh, these great Irish and British stores, like the Irish store down in Utterbro and Little Britain and Taylor and Jones and that kind of thing, and the lads having the Cadbury's chocolate are just after ruining me completely. So I think I started on about the 22nd of December and I've been eating it ever since. And of course, the lovely turkey from Taylor and Jones and the whole lot. I hope you've had a magnificent Christmas wherever you were. I hope that your travel was smooth and enjoyable if you're over in Ireland. And if you are here in Sweden, that uh, the old grey weather didn't get you down too much. I hope you had a good time with friends and family. And if it was a little bit of a darker time of the year for you, I hope you got through it all right. And uh, that you're looking forward now to 2023, which we are now in. Um, the funny thing about this podcast like, is it never really stops so you know uh, I know it wasn't producing podcasts or putting them out certainly on the Mondays because one of them was St Stephen's Day and the other was the 2nd of January but I was still sort of trying to plan things as I went along so it never really went away at all but we have a couple of crackers coming up for you that's a terrible joke directly after Christmas, but there you go. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Carl Stein. Carl Stein, there's me giving it the old Swedish German pronunciation. Carl Stein is the chap's name, right? Uh, the man behind Tusht, the soft drinks company, who uh, you would have heard him a couple of months ago, or maybe a few weeks ago at this stage, but uh, he came on and he was telling us all about uh, how he goes about making his ecological soft drinks out there in Valmdö, just towards Naka, that direction there. And... Uh, but as I was leaving there that day, I got a box of stuff off him, right, with all these various different flavours. And it's happened before, because we bought stuff off him before, and the kids here went mad for it. They absolutely loved it. So I arrived home there, whatever, October, November, with a few bottles in the car again, a little box of bottles in the car. And she didn't, they run out and all by Christmas, and they were going, look at you have to ring Carl and get this sorted out, because there's no way we're having Christmas dinner without the stuff from Tushed. And sure enough, I sent a message to Carl. Now, Carl can be a hard man to get hold of. As you will remember from that episode, I was talking about how hard it was to get hold of him uh, to do the interview to begin with. But boy, Jays, if you're going to be ordering a few bottles off me, get you uh, sorted out quick smart. And at the time, he actually had... Uh, a chap, a Norwegian friend of his who was driving around the place doing deliveries. So the very next day that they turned up with another box of 24 soft drinks, I don't think that there's any of them left. There's some lovely flavours in there. There's a real raspberry one and there's a lemon one and there's an elderflower one and that kind of thing. And uh, and the girls loved them over Christmas. So thanks very much to Carl Stein for sorting that out at very, very short notice. And needless to say, it's like a puppy. Uh, touched soft drinks are not just for Christmas. You can have them year round and they will bring you joy. So get in touch with Carl there, Tushed, and uh, he will sort it out with your orders for whatever you want to be having in your larder um it's been an interesting Christmas as I said we've been trying to set up a couple of different guests and people have been away and people don't want to think about you know sitting down and talking to me for a half an hour or an hour you know but we had one or two in there and one of the people that I've been really trying to get hold of for the last little while is a very very busy man down on the west coast of Gothenburg so we're going to open 2023 outside of the fine city of Stockholm uh, and we're going to travel down to Gothenburg we're going to speak to Tom Chamney right now those of you who live in Gothenburg will know who Tom is Tom is a restaurateur there he's uh, a former Irish athlete he competed at the olympics for ireland as a middle distance runner a man with an absolutely fascinating story and well able to tell it as well but what i always found fascinating about tom is how his life despite being a very sort of committed and a very dedicated individual and uh, you know very much sort of driven by his goals and that that an awful lot of things in his life have just happened to him right and one of them was meeting a swedish woman back in around about 2009 i think when he was competing there in gothenburg at one point he met a swedish woman who he since uh, married and they have two lovely children and that kind of thing but an awful lot of his life has been about sort of coincidence and that so you have these sort of dual track approach again another terrible pun to be starting the year so i got in touch with him uh, no actually he got in touch with me because i put out a little story uh saying that look at you know the podcasts are coming back etc etc and i put all the global gale podcasts on one feed there on the global gale website globalgatepod.com so you can catch up on them if you want and he sent me a message saying because we'd said before that we're going to chat and have a catch up and that kind of thing so i said no better buckle and uh, later the same day, we sat down over Zoom and we had a chat. So uh, this is the first podcast of the year. It's about Tom Chamley. And we start off talking about his time in the restaurant business here in Sweden, where literally from nothing, as he said, literally from sitting in his underpants, as he says in the interview, to owning a couple of restaurants and a food truck down below in Gothenburg. And then we got into another fascinating part of his life, which is his past as an athlete. So uh, before we get into that, just want to remind you that uh, patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm... Uh, 
now this is the thing i'm not even going to give out the swish number this week right because i'm now committed to this idea lads i produced about eight podcasts a month somewhere between eight and twelve podcasts a month and i reckon to be fair that's worth a fiver a month right so this month of all months kick off 2023 in style go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in stockholm commit to five euros a month plus vat and just help me out there because the way i can make this into a sort of a full-time thing like concentrate and bring in these stories the more people that do that the easier it's going to be for me to do right and i have a target in mind for the global irish community and i have a target in mind for the swedish irish community and if you could back me i'd be really 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 grateful and i'll continue to bring you stories like tom's and like carl's and the other businesses and the people involved in politics and civil life and sport around the country but i need your support to be able to do it right so forget swish this month patreon.com forward slash arrowman in stockholm and throw in a few bob now here he is tom chamney from gothenburg Tom, how has Christmas been down on the west coast of Sweden in Gothenburg? Has it been as grey and as miserable as it was here in Stockholm? <laughs> um, ah, uh, yeah, probably. We had one day where it was good weather, but uh, for the most part, it was wet and not super cold. But ah, uh, yeah, mainly wet, kind of, kind of like Ireland, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. There was a, like I got back. I was at the World Cup in Qatar, and then I came back, and it was loads of snow, and it was lovely, and thought, oh, deadly, a white Christmas, and then it just rained for two days, yeah. and that was the end of that, you know. Yeah, we uh, we had the same. We had the same. God, I mean, but how did you have it this year? Now, were you at home with your wife's family, or did you have family over from Ireland to celebrate, or how did you do it? No, we uh, normally we go back to Ireland. I my parents live in Clonmel in in Tip, so normally we go back to Ireland uh, for the Christmas. Obviously, not with the pandemic, we were here. But uh, so this was the first Christmas in is it two or three years where we could have gone home. Uh, but Ryanair have stopped the direct flight back to Dublin. So when we looked up to the prices to get, I have a, my wife and two uh, kids. It was it was just mad expensive. I think all the flights globally, like the prices, have just gone bananas. So then my parents decided, oh look, uh, there's only two of us flying, so we'll fly over to you. So my parents flew over and. Um, my wife's mom and her sister came to spend the Christmas with us. So it was a full house. Super. And did you do the whole sort of Swedish Christmas first and then the Irish Christmas or did you just yeah. sort of, you know, roll it all in together? No, we did. We had two Christmases. We did the tr- the wife and her mom and her sister sorted out the food for the Swedish Christmas on Christmas Eve. And then I was, I was put in charge by the mother of doing, uh, we did some roast chickens for the Christmas day, uh, Micromanaged, I'll say, by their mother, making sure I didn't <laughs> mess it up. Like, but yeah, so the kids were the kids were delighted. You know, they got two Christmases, but uh, yeah, it was a good bit of work for everybody. Yeah, it's, it's the same here. My kids are probably a good bit older than yours, you know. But the turkey dinner on Christmas Day that has to happen, you know. And my, um, first, yeah. my wife has been. Uh, how did your mother react to the whole sort of uh, pickled herring and and gravad lax and all that kind of thing? Is that the had she tried that sort of stuff before? Now, in your time living here, or was this the first time for her? No, it wouldn't be the the. the the pickled herring, uh, she spe- she used to work in Denmark, so she had some kind of, she knew what pickled herring was and she's had it before, but I, I will say some of the stuff now, she wasn't, um, Prince Corv didn't didn't go down that well with her. Uh, but to be honest, both my parents, they were kind of delighted, oh, this is something different and yeah. this is how the Swedes get to celebrate it. So they, it's, it's quite different. Christmas food from Sweden and Christmas food from back home is a lot different. So it was good in a way, like they were happy out like to try the stuff. Uh, but I don't think it'll be replacing too many of, of the dishes on my mom's uh, Christmas dinner list uh, back home. But <laughs> you, it, you won't it, get this call for seal, you know, drive to Ikea and Ballymun to get seal for next Christmas Eve, no? Well, I will say that one thing, uh, there was one year my dad had asked, oh, can you bring some of that pickled herring? Not for Christmas, but because he likes to eat it on toast. Don't ask me why. So I went down to Lissaberry, have a big Christmas market here in Gothenburg. So I, w- I went in there especially and bought a huge tub of some like artisanal uh, pickled herring and brought it over with, with me and didn't it burst in my bag and oh, all geez. my clothes were re- like, like everything stank of herring slash pickle. It was a bit of a disaster. So he has asked me since to bring some, but I've kind of told it him it hasn't happened. I, I could just imagine the sight, you know, you walking into public Claude Mel, nobody even looking around but going, yeah, Tom's here just from the smell of you. 
yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Some might say it was an improvement. I went <laughs> Come here to me. You're, a, a, you know, we're always very modest about this as Irish people, but you're actually a very successful businessman down there in the catering industry. I remember with Tom Tom's Burritos was a very successful enterprise down there. Is it still that way after the pandemic? Do you still have a whole bunch of people working for you and food trucks out on the road, or what are you concentrating on at the moment? Um, well, I wouldn't say it's as successful, but it's still a strong business the pandemic uh yeah obviously all, so many restaurants and everything went to the wall and it was tough for everybody so uh no we, i still have a a staff of about 10 11 people uh we have two restaurants and i had two food trucks but i sold one uh so i have one food truck and um, but it's not look i'm not gonna lie it's not as busy as it was you know before the pandemic but slowly but surely we're getting back to where we were but it's uh it's been two and a half years of, of, you know, turbulent times, shall we say. I think I've said it before on this podcast that surviving is the new winning. As long as you can manage to open the door every day and get a few people in or whatever, you know, and keep paying the bills, I suppose that's, you know, we have to be sort of thankful for that. And um, how does that work for you? Because, like, you'll always, I was talking to Liam Ginnan on the podcast before Christmas there, and he's working at a lovely place out in NACA here. And he was saying that, like, you can't make money on food. So, how do you make money on food? What's the secret sauce there, Tom? Uh yeah, he's got a fairly good point. He's got a good point there. Uh, at the moment, it's it's almost impossible to make money on food with the way the food prices have gone and the concept, like the the business concept that I have, it's high volume, low margin. So when your margin is squeezed from the cost of the ingredients, um, it's yeah, it it is extremely difficult at the moment, but. Catering, for example, you, you can make a higher margin on catering because you're also providing the extra service of either bringing in the food truck or bringing in delivery or setting up a mobile buffet, for example, in an office or or at an event or something. So um, that hasn't really been affected in terms of profitability uh, rather than if you just sell food in the restaurant. And then as well, alcohol, obviously, if you sell beer, you make a much better margin so on the weekends you're hoping that you know you get a bunch of young lads coming in for a burrito and a few beers and stuff so to be honest yeah the restaurant industry in sweden so much of it has to do with how much alcohol you can sell and the food kind of hopefully pays the bills you know what i mean you're not it's only really mcdonald's i'd say or, or you know those massive chains that are making money directly from selling food it wouldn't really be the norm within the industry you know and, you know, when you mentioned there that, you know, you're talking about sort of the very sort of tight margins, the quality that you provide people with is very, very high indeed. And of course, that costs money. Are you the kind of guy who could say, well, look, at, I'm going to use cheaper bread, I'm going to use cheaper ingredients, or would you rather not do it at all if you had to sort of, you know, reduce the quality of what you're selling? No, no, that's something that, for better or worse, I'm kind of married to. Like, um, it would be a lot, like, none of, none of the stuff we use comes in frozen. Uh, it's all either from Sweden or from Europe. Uh, but I don't really want to go down that road because we, like I've been in business nine years and people expect a certain standard and okay, obviously, you know, you get negative reviews or, or, you know, the people working there are only human, you know, okay, we made a mistake on a certain dish or whatever, but in terms of the, the provenance or the quality of what you're putting in as your base ingredients, it's always, got to be to a certain standard and it would be pretty easy you know to go buy frozen uh chicken from thailand or from brazil uh and you would basically cut your chicken bill in half but the uh, we've tested it out not to the customers now but i've bought in a few batches just to see well look what is the difference in quality and it's just night and day so it's not worth the risk uh, especially at a time like this like the last thing you want to do is piss people off and yeah. they come in expecting a certain level and it's it's so obvious that this isn't what I'm used to. You're mm. going to, the customers that you do have coming in, you're going to push them away. And that's the last thing you want to do right now. So it's more about trying to negotiate with your suppliers uh, trying to get your volumes up. So, you know, I've had to go out, for example, uh, Pinto beans. I buy them by the ton now. Uh, oh, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can, you can get your margin down on that, for example, but it's, it's, <sighs> It's all about those small details. You can, oh, okay, I can save two crowns there. Uh, mm. I can save one crown here. And eventually you hope to add, okay, I've saved, you know, 10 crowns. Well, that that's more to do with negotiation rather than, okay, I'm going to automatically go to to buy cheaper, cheaper ingredients. Mm. 
Um, how do you find, like, as Irish people, you know, we, we sort of grew up in an environment where price was everything, right? So if a hamburger was cheaper, you know, in the place next door, well, then everybody would go there because we didn't have that much money. But in Sweden, quality seems to trump price a lot of the times. Would you be afraid to put your prices up? Have you put your prices up since the prices of, of food and the raw materials that go into your burritos? Or are you kind of going, don't want to do that just yet because I don't want to be scaring people away? Uh, I'm a bit of a nervous Nelly actually when it comes to that kind of thing um, to put it in context maybe once every 18 months since I've started so nine years um, I've put the prices up and it's always I, I do get quite anxious because you just never know how the customers are going to react mm. uh, but since June or July this year I've had to do it twice so twice in a pretty short period of time um, and it's one of those things that I really really hate doing it but to be honest, the minute we've done it, like I could count on one hand the amount of people, the amount of customers who've actually even noticed it. You know what I mean? Um, but having said that, with what we sell, because it's burritos, like it's street food, it's supposed to be not McDonald's prices, but not like bistro prices. It's right in the middle. I, I have a bit of a feeling now we're kind of getting close to the top end of what someone would be willing to pay for street food, you know? Uh, so it's a very fine balance. Uh, because there's nothing you can do. You have to put the prices up. Like wages go up, electricity goes up. The, uh, the food cost is just off the off the charts. How much that's gone up in the last three to six months. Um, that if you don't do it, you may as well just close the doors and not even try. Like there's nothing you can do. And actually, I will say, like now with this current like inflation crisis, uh, customers, I feel in general, not just our customers, but in most restaurants, they, they're kind of understanding of well, look. You know, we know from just picking up a newspaper that these places that we go to eat out in, like they're getting squeezed bad with the with the the rise in food costs. So maybe in this current environment, people are a little bit less uh, likely to react in a negative way. They're more likely to be a bit understanding of, well, look, you know, these guys have to have to put food on their tables. So okay, it's ten crowns more expensive or twenty crowns more expensive than it was, but it's just the way it is right now for everybody. You know. Well, that's the thing. I think everybody's looking at their prices and I suppose people are looking at their salaries as well and saying, well, if inflation is 10%, I'm going yeah. to have to get that kind of a rise to be able to keep up. How did you fall into this business? Because we'll get into your sort of backstory as an athlete and that kind of thing in a few minutes. But how did you end up in, in restaurants and in catering and that kind of thing? Was that something that you studied? Was it something you always wanted it to do? Or was it just an accident of being here in Sweden? I was. It was 99% an accident of being in Sweden. I'd finished up with uh, athletics kind of uh, in a in a sudden in a sudden way, I just decided one day from the next look, I can't do this anymore. Uh, so then, and I was my wife now, but she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, I was just sitting around her apartment for two weeks, literally in my jocks, like, what am I going to do now? Because um, that transition from doing professional sport into into any kind of a job, uh, it, it's not. It, it's more complicated than maybe. Um, the general population would understand like it sounds great and all whatever sport you're doing oh, I was a pro you know in my case oh, I was a professional athlete for X amount of years but employers can't see like what skills have you got to bring to my organisation you know it sounds mm -hmm. great like to talk about but you're not really coming with defined like a defined list of like job experience or, or skills that you've learned mm -hmm. uh, so after about two or three weeks of sitting around, kind of feeling sorry for myself, more stressing out about like, what the hell am I going to do now? Um, I actually went, I went for a meeting at Arbeitz from Ellingen, uh, to see, oh, you know, these guys are, their job is to help people get jobs. Uh, and I went for this meeting with this guy and it was just the biggest waste of time ever. Uh, he basically told me, go down to the Irish pub and ask them for a job. Like that was, and <laughs> I, said, I said it to him in the meeting because I was like, yeah, but look, you have a CV there. I have no experience of working in bars. Do you really think like I'm qualified to go down to some bar and, and become a barman? Like, I, you know, yeah. well, that's probably your, your only chance. And then I said, but can you, can I ask you another question? How is it that you got this job where you tell people what kind of jobs they can get? Because I think I can do your job better than you're doing it right now. <laughs> you you and, appear to be fairly useless at this, mate. <laughs> yeah. So I, he, he kind of looked at me because he didn't really... He kind of looked at me like, you know, the typical kind of quiet Swede. He didn't really know what to say. And I was just like, oh, look, thanks for your time. See you later. And after yeah. that, I was like, right, I'm going to have to 
get the finger out here and figure something out. And I'd seen, because uh, I was living in the States um, from 2002 to about 2008. And that was when this whole Mexican street food kind of craze came throughout the, ho- the whole of the States. You know, it wasn't just California. You know, it, it went throughout the Midwest where I was living and everywhere. And when I moved back to Ireland in the recession, uh, these burrito places were opening up all over Dublin. And, you, you know, the recession was tough. There wasn't much going on. But these places still had a line, a queue coming out the door and stuff. So I was like, man, there has to be something about this burrito. I don't know where really where the idea came. But I was like, man, there has to be something about these burrito places because anywhere they go, they're successful. So then I went off and did a bunch of research. And I knew a lad back in Ireland who was doing it. Um, so I just kind of did a bunch of research. And I said, look, I've got some savings. So I'll take a chance. I'll start me off. I start me on. Re- I never even, I never even worked in a restaurant. I was like, right, I'm starting a, I'm starting a restaurant. <laughs> I'm starting a burrito place uh, in Sweden. So um, that was, yeah, that was, it was crazy now when I think about it. But that was how it got started. It's unbelievable because, like, when you think of all the regulations, you mentioned the sale of alcohol and just the rules around that would blow your mind in Swedish and that. And you you rocked up with no experience. How did you go about it? Did you start as a limited company and just go and rent a premises, or you know, how did, did your wife have to give you a whole lot of help with translating stuff and learning stuff and that kind of thing in the beginning? Well, listen, look, I I love my wife dearly, yeah, but I wouldn't say she was the the best of help when it came to like translating stuff and all. She basically was like, look, you figure it out. You know, I don't have time for this. You <laughs> figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's your project. You deal with it. Uh, I mean, look, I'm half joking. She helped me in some ways, but I'm pretty much, um, oh, gee, it's a bit of a crazy story. I, I didn't have a clue, like how, how do you even get started? So I had a meeting with Almy uh, and I met some guy and that's like a government agency. Like they'll help anyone if they want to start a business. So I met this guy, Leon, who kind of talked me through, right, yeah, you should set up a limited company and this is how you fill in the forms and this is what this means. And, you know, the kind of basics of how any business is set up in Sweden. But when it came to like going out and finding premises or whatever, um, that was really, really difficult because I didn't speak any Swedish at this stage. And you're sending emails into like you'll see like an empty unit. and Oh, that place, that could be good. Uh, and I have, you know, a phone number, an email on the door. Uh, you send them off an email in English and they wouldn't even write back to you. Or if they did, they'd tell you, no, we're not interested. Like you have to have like a track record in Sweden. You have to have, Mm. uh, you know, more than just, yeah, you've only been in the country for whatever it was at that stage, three, three months, maybe three or four months. Uh, You know, I think at this stage, I didn't even have a pursuit number because I couldn't get one because I didn't have a job. Uh, So even getting a bank account, like that was really difficult like it took six months just to get the banking all set up properly and everything um but i met a guy uh this old swedish guy uh i actually found him on block it he put up like some sort of an ad for like a restaurant consultant and mm. and this guy ulf was his name he was one of the founders of that pub chain uh harry's okay uh, yeah so he had in the past been relatively successful so I kind of hooked up with this guy thinking, oh, maybe me and you can be 50-50 partners. And he knew everything. Like, he knew, okay, uh, you have to contact the landlord. You have to negotiate with them. You have to convince them of your concept. Then you sign the lease. And if the unit is not empty, it's just somebody, you know, I want to get out of the restaurant game. I want to sell, you know, my premises. You have to pay them for the rights to the lease. Uh, and then you have to go to the landlord and negotiate. You know, there's all this stuff that I hadn't got a clue about. Uh but I was thinking, oh, yeah, me and this old fella, like, Ulf, we can be 50-50 partners. We were going in for a meeting with this woman. We found the location. Ulf found the location, not me, um, mm. for this lady who had a clothes shop, and she wanted to sell it, and we were going to turn it into a restaurant. Uh, and we met with the landlord, and we told him what we wanted to do, and, and the landlord, to be fair, was open to the idea. So then we went in for this meeting with this woman where we were supposed to negotiate, okay, how much do you want for your lease? Uh, how much do you want us to pay you? And uh, Ulf turns around right before this meeting and says, oh, but I don't have any money. Uh, <laughs> like, I can't be 50-50 partners with you. Like, you're on your own. And I'm like, what? Like, now the cost of this is just doubles for me. Like, I, I'm not, you know, I, I had limited savings at the time. Yeah. Um, and what Ulf's game was, he wanted to help renovate. He wanted me to pay him to renovate the clothes yeah. shop into a restaurant. Mm. Uh and he turned out to be an absolute lunatic, this old guy. Like, he was mentally unstable. Like, it turned out, it was just crazy. But you, when you don't know it, you know how it is. You move yeah, to yeah. a country, you don't, you don't know anybody. I didn't yeah. have any network of, like, 
plumbers or electricians or ventilation specialists or like who should I call about this or even buying restaurant equipment like I just didn't I didn't have phone numbers like how do I find these people to come in and give me expert advice whereas this old guy did yeah. uh, but in the long run uh, I was kind of glad to see the back of Ulf. He did. I did hire him to to renovate the restaurant, but he did like an absolute shit job. So did he? Yeah. After after we, but by this stage, I was like, I have to just get open and get some money coming in. Like I have to start. Mm. Uh, so within a year of opening, I had I had enough cash to go back and fix all these dodgy building practices that Ulf had used to build mm. the first restaurant. You know what I mean? So it all kind of worked out in the end, but. It is extremely difficult when you move somewhere and you like number one, I didn't have any experience in restaurants. I didn't have any experience in setting up a limited company or like even opening a bank account in a foreign country. You've no tax number, you know. And mm. then you factor in like, all right, who do I call if the fridge breaks? It it took uh, pro- it took me probably longer than it would obviously a Swedish person to to make those connections with people in the city and kind of learn learn how everything works, you know. Mm. Are you happy you did it now, Tom? Or when you look back, do you go, fuck me, never again? Uh, probably 50-50. <laughs> it's always it, easier it, when it's done. You just go, okay, it's up and running now. And okay, a few sleepless nights, but I keep tipping away, you know. But I often wonder, with a person like yourself who's so driven and who's not really going to be, you know, working for somebody else doesn't sound like an option, you know. So And they certainly weren't prepared to give you a chance back then. So you think, well, maybe he might do it again, you know. Um. I, I think what I, I I yeah I would I do it again, but it was an awful lot more work uh, yeah. and stress than I had anticipated. Uh, like yeah, it, the first like five years of it was just you know, and I mean when you're running your own business, you you expect right I'm gonna have to work like extremely hard and everything. Um, so that yeah, and it's a fulfilling kind of role because you can see like the more work you put in, like you're building it up and building it up, and um, you can see. You know, oh, we had, you know, 200 customers today. We had 100 customers. You can see a physical, you know, end product of what you've done. You've spent 10 hours working, but you've fed X amount of people. And, you know, you're working with other people. You meet, you know, the staff and everything. We have a, a really good team vibe, especially because most of the staff are not Swedes. They're all looking for a chance. You know, they, they probably found it difficult to get work like I did. Listen, you come down here everything's in English slash Swedish. So don't worry about the language just yet. You know, this kind of thing. Mm. So it's been extremely fulfilling, but it's been a wild ride. And yeah, I probably underestimated how, how extremely difficult it is to set up a business, especially in restaurants and kind of make a go of it, you know? Mm. You've expanded since then. So it's not just the the restaurants anymore. Sorry, it's not just the the, the burrito restaurants anymore. Tell me about this. Do you still have this Vega restaurant uh, concept that you were running before? Yeah, well, I'm still, I'm not as involved as I was in that. Basically, that's a microbrewery, Vega Brigerie. Uh, it's a microbrewery, and, and I was doing all their ca- catering for them, and they had a small, like, tasting room for their beers, and they were doing kind of private parties or corporate events and stuff, and we would come in and do the catering. And uh, One of the food trucks, one, the one that I've uh, sold recently, it's, it was a tiny kind of like a moped thing. Uh, so you could actually drive it. You can drive it inside. It fits you know inside a regular door almost uh, so we would even drive the food truck in and have you know big events there and then they came to me that they wanted to expand their brewery and they wanted to build out uh, 800 square meter uh like event space slash restaurants you know slash concert venue and and asked me if i wanted to go in and partner with them um so i did that that was right before the pandemic we started on that project uh, that project's been a little bit difficult because number one, like you said there earlier, like I work real well on my own, but work with other people, it was a different kind of experience. Not that it, it went badly or whatever, but it's just different. Like you have to listen to what their opinions are on certain things and let, and they have to listen to your opinion and kind of decisions take a lot longer to be made. Mm-hmm. And then with the pandemic, like I had a difference of opinion about how we should navigate that. Uh, and the pandemic really kind of killed that business because, you know, you weren't allowed more than was it 30 or 50 people in a, in a space but when you have an 800 square meter venue and there's 20 people allowed in you know the guests themselves are like man this is just you know it's like being make money a, as well you know yeah yeah and you know the guest experience isn't great obviously the money is terrible because you just can't get enough people in to pay the rent and everything um but 
there was myself and two Swedish partners in the, in the brewery or in that brewery project. But one of the Swedish partners decided that he wanted out of the brewery and the restaurant. He wanted out of everything. So that's kind of complicated the issue a little bit because now there's new owners involved with um, Vega Briggery. Uh, they have a new CEO and stuff. So I'm still involved, but I'm not as hands-on as I was for the first two years of it. Um, and that's partly because just the way things worked out with the pandemic. But also once the pandemic hit, uh, I also had to spend a lot more time really concentrating on Tom Toms because there's only so many hours in the day. I and mean, when you open up a new restaurant and you have two other restaurants and you had two food trucks and, you know, there was a lot of things going on when the pandemic hit, it literally flipped, you know, on a dime. And OK, I need to really drill down into trying to get our costs down. We started our own home delivery service. We uh, tried to go out more with the food truck. We tried to focus on private caterings instead of corporate caterings because the corporates were i mean that dropped to zero mm. so i didn't have as much time to spend down in in vega when there's you know there oh, we're only allowed 30 people in the restaurant or you know uh things like that you know what i mean well you were never tempted to go down the irish bar route despite abbots from edling tell you that this would be your best chance you never thought oh, i'm going to open tom chamney's irish pub here in gothenburg no no i think i think like to be a, a true public in you've got to be willing to work like super late nights and uh, and it's a different kind of like I have a lot of respect for the, anyone who starts an Irish pub because I, I have a young family and all like to be working till two, three, four in the morning and dealing with people who've probably had too much to drink and all of that. Um, and actually there was one, not an Irish pub, but there was one year early on that we did a cooperation with a big nightclub here in the city. Mm. Uh, and that, I, you could see from the guys who were running that nightclub, like you're working until six in the morning, three or four nights a week. Uh, and and nightclubs, obviously, it's not the same as an Irish pub because there was lads doing all sorts. The guests are doing drugs and all. You know, it, it, you have to have really good security and all this. Um, that you'd be burnt out. Like I was like, man, that's definitely not for me. Like because these guys are dealing with a different level of stress. Obviously, they're stressed about trying to make ends meet and everything. You can make a lot more profit, obviously, if you're running a nightclub or even an Irish bar, if you get the people in because beer, alcohol, there's so much more margin. But your quality of life away from work, like you, it just wasn't something that I thought would go well with. All right, I've got, you know, two small kids and the wife would go ballistic if I was working till three, four in the morning all the time, you know. And when you start a business, like if you to start an Irish bar, that's what you'd have to do for three or four years until it's up and running. You got to be there. You know, when I started Tom Tom's, I was in there for 10 to 12 hours a day on the floor of the restaurant. Then I'd go home, pay the invoices, pay the staff, deal with the admin. Like I was doing that for probably at least two years, if not more, before I could. OK, I'll work eight hours on the floor instead of 12, you know. So mm. to try and do that in an Irish pub, that for me, I think would be one task that I'd find. <laughs> I'd find a little bit too difficult. Yeah, it's, it's it's one of those ways that if I want the wife to throw me the cold shoulder here, I just have to tell her and consider an opening an Irish bar and she'll just go upstairs and won't speak to me for about three weeks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, geez, we've been talking for ages, but we haven't really got back to what was a major part of your life until you went into the restaurant business, and that was your past as an athlete. Now, if I remember correctly, you were a middle distance runner, right? And was it the 800 metres was your sort of preferred event? That was your blue ribbon event at the time, was it? Yeah, that was the one that I had the most uh, success in, yeah. It's also the toughest event, if you ask me, in any form of athletics, because it's basically sprinting for a very, very long time. How did you end up being an 800 metre runner at the international level, at the very highest level? Uh, I just started in in uh, school. They no, Well, I got into the 800 because uh, my mom worked with a guy who was involved with the Clomel Athletic Club. And they were chatting one day and the mother said, oh, my son won the cross-country race like in the school. And this fella, uh, oh, he needs to come down to Clom LAC. And I, my mum was like, oh, on Saturday, you're going off with Clom LAC for a race. And I didn't know what was going on. OK, yeah, well, what's that? And we got on a minibus and drove to Temple Moor. And they were like, yeah, you're running the 800 metres. And I'd never even seen a track before. It was the county championships down in, in Tip. And pretty much from what age was it then, 13, I'd always, it just kind of happened. Like they stuck me in the 800 and I won that race. And then I went to Munsters and the Munster Championship, I think it came second. And it was just the all the way from when I started, maybe by chance, they stuck me out there for an 800. And that was pretty much what I kept running for the vast majority of my career. 
when you turn up at your first 800 meter race as a 13 year old, what do you know about it? What's the feeling like when you're standing there in the line? Were you very nervous at that first race or were you just thinking, well, Jay's, I've only just turned up so nobody can have any expectations of me? Nah, back then, back then, like I didn't, I wasn't nervous or I, I didn't really know what was going on. You know, they just said, <laughs> right, you have to run two laps of the, two laps of the track and off you go. And, um, I see, I seem to remember it was pissing rain that day. So I was absolutely freezing. So I was delighted just to run, just to warm up a bit, you know? Uh, so when you start out, I, I wouldn't say I was ever that nervous at, at that stage. When you obviously you start progressing and you start running in the All Irelands and you start making international teams, and then yeah, you, I it was more so when I was taking it seriously that I I'd be uh, packing it like. Um, how how tactical or how technical is that kind of running, right? Because I remember many years ago, I think it might have been actually a year after you ran at the Diamond League in Oslo. You had a great performance there, I think it was in 2009. And I was there the following year and somebody was explaining to me the technique that goes into sprinting the 200 metres and, you know, where you straighten up your back and all this kind of thing. I'd looked at athletics for years. I'd never understood these things at all. So did you discover then as you sort of rose up the levels of track and field that it was a very technical, very tactical sport or did you just try to run as fast as you could so to speak uh no when you start to get like a little bit older uh then tactics come into it a lot more i think once you go beyond probably 200 400 meters uh like the technical elements of of running 800 meters for example would nearly be as uh, as stringent like you know i never worried about the, whatever the technique the technique or whatever I was using to run an 800 because it's a lot longer 200. Yeah. Sprinting for sure. Uh, sprint hurdles. You, you really have to drill down into those tiny, tiny details because a hundredth of a second is the difference between, you know, qualifying for the Olympics or not. Whereas in the 800, it's a lot more to do with your tactics. What kind of tactics suit you? Um, the thing about the 800 that makes it real difficult is you can have guys who are real good sprinters. You can have African-American guys, who are like more muscle bound and they can move up from 200 or 400 to do the 800. And then you had skinny white guys like me who could drop kind of almost down from longer distance into the 800s because the, I mean, if you want to, it's getting maybe a bit scientific, but basically you've anaerobic and aerobic energy systems, how you process energy. And for example, the hundred meters will be 90% or 95% anaerobic five percent aerobic aerobic being you know fellas who can run marathons uh, but the 800 is almost a 50 50 split so you can have sprinters coming up and you can have long distance guys coming down sprinters always like to take out the race really really hard and basically run as hard as they could from the get-go and try not to die uh whereas <laughs> when it, guys like me i i wouldn't have the speed to be able to run the first lap all out so I'd have to try and hang back a little bit. And then the last 200 meters, your strength, your aerobic strength would kick in and you would die less than, mm. than a, a 400 meter specialist moving up, if that makes sense. It's it's always fascinating me because you know we tend to think of this oh he's just fast but there's so many other things that go into that and like I said the difference between anaerobic and aerobic fitness and um, you went to college in the United States so you went to Notre Dame didn't you and competed yeah. over there in the NCAA I mean I don't know if people in Europe really understand exactly how big that is but that's a massive massive sporting circus isn't it Ah uh, yeah it's ridiculous actually like all sports not just for athletics the you know, we had a football stadium on the campus, an American football stadium, 80,000 uh, 80, seater capacity full every weekend from people all over the country coming to watch two college teams play American football uh, for the athletics. I mean, the standards, especially in the sprinting events, it's just insane. I mean, it's better than the European championships when it gets to the sprints up to probably the 400 and maybe even the 800 would be on a par a fraction below European Championship uh, standard. So, um, and even and not even at the NCAA level, even like conference level, all the competitions. There's just uh, there's a lot more money in in collegiate sport in America, obviously. So they can fund the, the universities can fund all these teams, but um, it's probably something that people who haven't experienced it wouldn't really get. That it's it's like going to a to a major championships almost almost. When you were over there, were you on a scholarship at Notre Dame or were you living on your own dime at that time? No, no, I, I was lucky enough that uh, my first year out there, there was the coach, uh, basically my goal was 
I, I never really expected to like, you know, make it as a pro or, you know, have a long career running for Ireland or whatever. My goal when I was in school was I'd really love to run fast enough to get a scholarship to go pretty much anywhere in the States. It didn't really matter where, just to experience living in America. And um, towards the end of my sixth year, the uh, my dad, I'd asked me, I told my dad, like, look, I'd really love to go to the States. And he was like, look, you can't go unless it's to a, a good academic institution, like somewhere that has, your degree has to be worth something when you come back to Ireland when you're finished. And so he had suggested, right, we'll send off a few emails to a few of these universities. Uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Like I was like, Dad, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the grades like for this. What do you? Do? No, no, we have to try. And then he decided, oh, I'll send an email to Notre Dame because of the Fighting Irish connection. They'll probably love you because you're Irish. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I didn't. Sure, let's try it. And of those, the Ivy League schools basically, yeah, good luck to you. Like number one, you're not fast enough, and number two, you're stupid, so you're not getting in here. <laughs> <laughs> You've nothing going for your son, nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the guy, the guy at Notre Dame, Joe Piani was his name, an old Italian American guy. To be fair to him, uh, he said, "No, your grades are good enough to get you in, uh, but your times are a little bit too slow to get a scholarship. Uh, you need to improve your times." And this was coming up to, uh, like the end of my six sixty or so, kind of clock was ticking. And uh, luckily enough, I went out in a race in Santry and ran could have been a three and a half or a four second PB, like ma- took a massive chunk off my personal best. Uh, and he, this coach had said, look, if you run 151 for the 800, I- I'll sort you out with a scholarship. So if you don't run 151, you can still come, but you have to pay for it yourself. Like we'll get you into the university. You'll have a spot on the team. Mm. But if you want a scholarship, you got to run 151. And my PB was 154. And uh, oh. right after the leaving, sir, so I hadn't even really been training that much. Uh, we had there was a race out in Santry and I went out and I ran 151. And to be fair to the to the coach, I rang him up and said, Look, I've run 151 now. And this was kind of before internet and stuff, like checking the results wasn't as mm. wasn't as easy as it is now. He took he took me on my word and was like, Yeah, okay, you've run 151. We'll sort you out with a scholarship. We'll see you in August. And that was kind of it. Well, and what does that cover then, Tom? Does that cover like everything, you know, uh, your flights over or your accommodation or food or what what do you get for that? Uh, it doesn't cover your flights over. It covers your tuition, which is the biggest cost. It covered, uh, Notre Dame had a rule that you, you had to live on the campus uh, three of your four years at the university. So it covers your dorm fees, covered all your food, covered all your gear, covered all your physio, all your travel to competitions for the university, covered your insurance. Um, so pretty much everything except for getting to and from the university was covered. And then your last year, uh, you you were allowed to live, you know, you could live off campus, like in an apartment complex or whatever. Um, and that actually worked out real well because it was cheaper to live off campus. You ended up making money. Like, I, I think I came home one year with about four or $5,000 in the bank mm-hmm. still because I hadn't spent that much on on rent and food and stuff. So, uh, no, it was it was an amazing, it's an amazing opportunity for anyone who gets to gets to experience it. Um, you got to run uh, in the Olympics for Ireland. In, was it Beijing in 2008 where you, you ran for Ireland there? What was the experience of being an Olympian like for you? Uh, to be honest, it was... Uh, I don't want to say it was a load of shit, but uh, it, wasn't <laughs> what, it wasn't really what I had thought it was going to be like because I'd spent... By this stage, you know, I'd gone through uh, university in America. I'd come home. You kind of have this goal in your head, right, if I make this team like you know it's going to be once in a lifetime you kind of build it up in your head uh so i made the team but this was pat hickey's oci that were sending us out there so like the travel to and from the olympics was really really just ridiculous uh the olympic village itself like the team ireland did that and i'm sure a lot of the other athletes and not just from athletics but from all the sports like we were kind of if if the OCI didn't think you had a chance of winning a medal, which I most certainly had below zero chance of winning a medal at the Olympics, they kind of thought, you know, you're just here to kind of make up the numbers. Um, for example, like Volkswagen had sponsored a bunch of cars to bring athletes to and from different training venues or, you know, oh, I want to I want to go into town, you know, for the athlete to use. Mm. Man, we never saw those cars. You know what I mean? The OCI <laughs> took all those cars dri- driving around like. Uh, and it was the same, like when we were flying out, uh, we get onto the plane 
And like the whole Roy Keane story, all the athletes are in the back of the plane and the mm. business class is chock-a-block with these old boys decked head-to-toe in Irish Olympic gear. Mm. I saw them on the plane out there and I saw them on the plane home. I never saw them. Like, they weren't coaches. They weren't in the village, like, helping athletes. They weren't physios. They were mm. just kind of hangers-on. So, like, my personality, I really, like, I, it just really pissed me off, you know, all right, look, I'm not expected to win a medal or whatever at this point. I'm out here to try and represent Ireland as best I can. And you're kind of treating the athletes, which is which should be the most important thing about the Olympics, like a second thought, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, it's good that you're here, but, you know, good luck to you. You know, that kind of vibe. Um, so I will say competing in the Olympics, like when I ran in, in the Olympics, like being in the stadium and everything, that was an amazing experience. Uh, the atmosphere and everything in, in, in the bird's nest. And so that whole part of it, actually getting to go out and give it a go at an Olympic level, it was it was mind-blowing. But all the crap around it uh, kind of soured the experience for me. It's, it's a difficult one because, like, in one way, it should have been the greatest experience of your life. And then you see what this is, that, you know, you're pretty much seen as a box to be ticked for funding for next year. And again, you know, when you're operating at that level that you were at, people tend to forget that you're among the absolute best athletes in the world. That's just in college. And then you go to the Olympics and everybody has peaked. You know, they've having a four-year cycle where, where they're peaking at that point. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so difficult. People go, oh, you know, well, your man never won any medal. Do you know how hard it is to win these medals at these things, you know? Was there any standout memory for you, Tom, apart from being in the bird's nest and competing there? Was there anything about that? Did you meet anybody? Did you bump into anybody or you have any experiences there that you sort of took with you beyond your athletics career? Uh, probably not. I mean, I saw loads of, you know, Roger Federer was there, Serena Williams. Like you saw some real global superstars in the village, like in the cafeteria. Um, but I was kind of... Oh, I don't want to be going up asking them for a, for autographs, you know, or I don't want to ask them for a selfie, you know. Uh, but what maybe to answer your question, like seeing those kind of that level of athlete, like they're some of the best, not just in their respective sports, but you know, across all sport, legends, of all time. absolute legends. Yeah. They're just regular people. Like they were super friendly to anyone who came over to them. They just went about their business like relaxed. You know, there was no airs of graces about them. They were just like, oh yeah, you know, with their, you know. Uh, cafeteria trays sitting down <laughs> sitting down on a long table with everyone else so mm. it kind of brought home to me like yeah, you see these people on TV and they're you know they dedicate their whole life they train even harder than I train probably they're obviously more talented than, than I am but at the end of the day they're just you know they're just like you and me they're just regular people who happen to have a huge talent or a set of skills or an incredible drive and um, mm. So that was kind of interesting to see. You know, I didn't even think they'd be in the village. I thought they'd be off in a five-star hotel or whatever, but no, they were in mm. there with everyone else just hanging out. Yeah. I think the only real exception to that ever was when the Dream Team in 1992 in Barcelona, the NBA basketball players came and they stayed on some ship moored in the harbour of Barcelona. Yeah. That didn't go down very well because most people do tend to sort of stay in the village and like you say, you bump into these you know, these global names. Um, I have a little blast from the past year in terms of a name. Can you tell the good listeners who David Campbell is, please? <laughs> Dave Campbell he, he was a guy oh, look. Uh, <laughs> he was he was uh, another 800 meter runner from Ireland who uh, would have been my big rival for maybe three or four years um, and it was a big kind of news story within Irish athletics uh, because both of us were running the 800 meters and both of us were competing um, at an international level neck and neck trading Irish titles back and forth, which in athletics in Ireland is kind of rare that you have two athletes in one event that are competing at, you know, Diamond League kind of level. Uh, so, yeah, Campbell was my arch nemesis for, for quite a while, yeah. Um, you just weren't exactly friendly in that time, Tom, were you? No, 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 I hated him. I absolutely hated that guy. Where did yeah. the hate come from? Uh, I just didn't like him, you know. Some people... Uh, some people you meet them and you think this is a nice guy. Some people you meet you think, man, I don't, I don't like this guy. Uh, and that's pretty much what started it. I, I just, our personalities are not, they don't match up. You know, we, we're just mm. different kinds of people. And then when you factor in that when you're racing, you know, whoever wins this race is going to the world championships. Whoever wins this race is going to the Olympics. Uh, it's a big, it's a pressure situation. You know, it's, it, it's do or die. Like I really, 
have to beat this guy. It's really difficult to like somebody who is trying to take something away from you that you really want, you know? So there was a lot of different reasons why we didn't really get along particularly well. Um, but I'd say mainly it just came down to, look, I have to, you know, if I have to kill this guy to go to the world champs or the Olympics, I'm going to do it. Like that, that was the kind of mentality I had back then. I certainly don't have it now. And, mm. you know, I just didn't like him. I, I wanted to beat him every single I When I saw him, I wanted to beat him. Sometimes I wanted to beat him in his face and sometimes I wanted to beat him on the track. You know, it's just what it, it was what it was. You may not have liked him. Did you respect him as, as an athlete? Did you respect him as a person at all? Uh, I certainly respected him as an athlete. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a good athlete. Now, I was better than him, but, you know, we don't need to dwell on that too much. But um, <laughs> he, he, you know, like our careers were really, really different. I went to America on a scholarship. He stayed in Ireland. Uh, he he went down to Australia. He took a gamble, moved to, I think it was South Africa or Australia or something to try and further his career. And it worked out for him. And he started making huge improvements, which I have a lot of respect for someone who takes a, a tough decision like that. You know what I mean? To change up everything they're doing in pursuit of trying to attain a high level of performance. Uh, he was a real, real tough competitor on the track. Like, my best races were always against him because he brought the best out of me. Uh, just the nature, like the way he ran the 800 as well. He was just a, a real kind of street fighter on the track. He had to always bring 110% if you wanted to beat him, even if he maybe wasn't in the best of fitness or the best of form. I knew no matter what, if I go up against this guy, I have to perform to my top level or he's going to beat me. So I, I had a lot of respect for him as an athlete. As a person, that's hard to say. Look, I mean, it's not like we were hanging out all that much. So, I mean, uh, he wasn't a Nazi or anything. You know, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but, you know, I can't really say if I had respect for him as a as a person. I, I certainly didn't disrespect him as a person. You know what I mean? But I'm... When you stand on the start line with David Campbell, right, if you can just take me back to one of those races, you're standing there, it could be an Irish Championship, it could be a Diamond League event, you want to beat him more than anything else. The, like Again, the 800 is almost a sprint. It's it's the shortest middle distance race that there is. Do you have to concentrate on what he's doing the whole time? Do you have to watch him tactically? Do you have to see, okay, he's going a little bit faster now than he usually does, or, does, or he's hanging back a little bit more? Is that what becomes, what the race becomes for you? Well, it when we went to the Irish Championships, it was it was nearly always because we were we were so much better than the, no disrespect to the other guys, but we were a lot better than everyone else. So it was always kind of a two horse race uh, between me and him, uh, and he always tended to run the race a, a similar way when we were at the Irish Championships. He usually took it out not super fast, and then he tried and and wind the pace up from a long way out which is really, really hard to do, but it also makes it really hard for everyone else. You know, a long kick for home, incremental increases in the pace. Um, so it, it was almost, I knew what he was going to do uh, most of the time. And I knew what I was going to do. I knew what my strengths were. So most of the time it ended up, he would take it out. I would sit on his shoulder and then, in the last maybe 100, 120 metres, I would either kick past him to win, which... How many times did I beat him? I think I beat him three times at Irish Nationals. And then in 2007, he beat me because he had enough left in the tank from his long run for home that I couldn't, I didn't have the strength that day and he, he beat me that day. So the, all the races we had were kind of similar in, in how they played out. Um, you mentioned there that the end of your career came very suddenly, that you woke up one day and you decided, I don't want to do this anymore. Can you remember what it was that led you to that decision? Um. Well, after I I raced uh, 2010, I went to the European Championships and I didn't I didn't run well. I had a really bad Europeans, and then 2011, I was injured all year, and then for most of 2012. So now you're coming into an Olympic year. Okay, I really have to get it together here. I have to heal up the body and start training. But I pretty much spent 70 percent of that year injured. Didn't even get to race uh, to try and qualify for the Olympics. I was just injured the whole time. Uh, came back after the Olympics, I ran a few races and was kind of coming back a little bit. So then I said to myself, right, 2013, like, this is my last hurrah. I'm going to give it one more year and try and get back to the level I was at in 2009 and 2010. Uh, and 
uh, I went away on a training camp to, I think it was Portugal, and I got really, really, really sick with, I don't know what, was some sort of chest infection. I was sick for a good two or three weeks. And I came out for the indoor season then after this camp, and I, I, I ran terrible. I was running really, really badly. And I was actually here in Gothenburg. I, I flew over to visit the girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, for a week or two, just to be like, look, I, you know, indoor season went absolute disaster. What age would I be now? I was uh, 20, let's say 28, 29 years old. Like all my sponsors, the contracts have all run out of basically no sponsors, no funding. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're never going to get back to where you were a few years ago. Uh, your body has just had enough. Anytime you push the train and you get sick, and if you don't get sick, you pull a muscle or you get pain here, or pain there. So I just woke up and said, you know what? I actually was fairly emotional, actually, that day. I just woke up and was like, man, fuck this. I can't do this. Like, it's just not, I'm, this isn't fun anymore. Uh, and I'm just stressed about trying to get back to where I was. And it's becoming more and more difficult because I don't have any money. Uh, so, you know, screw this. Like, I'm just stopping. And that was it then. And I never, never ran again. Was there any sense of relief when you made that decision? Because, you know, you go through that stress, you go through asking yourself, oh, if I go to this doctor, if I take this supplement, if I do this kind of training, I'll do more in the pool because there's less resistance or whatever, you know. Uh, was it, was there any sense of relief that, fuck, thank God that's over now, that I'm not searching for answers that don't exist? Yeah, I think I, I was relieved. I think, like, what you just described there, I literally went to every... You know, I went to Germany two or three times to specialists. I was back and forth to England to specialists. I was working with the best guys in Ireland. Like, I exhausted every possible avenue to get my body in a place where I could train at the level I needed to train to, to produce, you know, to produce results. So I felt like, look, no one can say, well, you didn't really give it a go to try and come back, you know. Mm. Uh, and it was a relief in the sense that, but mainly because I was, I had decided, right, I'm coming to live in Sweden. If I'd been staying in Ireland, you know, you meet people in the street, oh, how's the athletics going? You know, it would have been a lot more in my face. Whereas over here, nobody knew you used to be an athlete or, you know, you weren't defined by the fact that you were an athlete. So maybe that made it a lot easier because uh, I wasn't around people who knew who I was or knew that I did athletics, you know, friends, family, people like that, uh, who didn't really know what I was going through. Uh but I, I certainly never regretted from the minute I made that decision to now I've never regretted. I've regretted lots of different things about my sporting career, decisions I made, you know, um, races I ran, mistakes I made in training, but I've never regretted quitting when I did because I gave it everything I had to get back and it just didn't work out. And it was time to move on to new, new things, you know? What's your relationship to sport now, Tom? Do you have any involvement with the rugby club or the Gaelic footballers or the soccer teams down there? Or are you just completely out now? Uh, no, when I moved over here first, I joined uh, the uh, Spartacus, the rugby club here in town, or one of the rugby clubs. And mm. that was really, really great because athletics, you're obviously training on your own for a lot of the year. It's very individ individualistic sport, uh, which brings a lot of rewards, obviously, in a certain way, because you're relying only on yourself. You're not relying on teammates to get the job done. You have to get the job done. But when I moved over here, I went out and played the season with Spartacus, uh, just mainly for something to do, plus try and meet people, make friends. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So I met up with Cormac O'Brien, his brother, Rui O'Brien, met other expats, other Irish people. Um, so I did that for a season. But then, look, <laughs> I wasn't really built for rugby. Uh, I ended <laughs> up, I, I, I had played a little bit in school, but um, these lads are, on, you know, these lads are in the gym and all, they were much bigger than me. I was a skinny, you know, I, I was strong for a runner, but, I was just too skinny, so I separated my shoulder and it broke uh, two ribs do, doing the rugby. And then I was like, look, and I just started my business as well by this stage. So I was like, oh, look, I can't be I can't be showing up to the restaurant with my arm in a sling. And, you know, how am I going to cut the chicken when, you know, I've only got one arm and stuff like that. So I, I kind of went out to training a few times, but I kind of knocked it on the heads after maybe a year of it. Uh, yeah. So now, now. I play a bit of tennis. I go for maybe a jog every couple of months, but really I just spend, I spend time working or I spend time with the family. I don't have that many sporting activities that I do on a super regular basis, you know? And when you look at your own children, Tom, have they shown any interest? Are they old enough to show any interest in sport just yet? Or are they still young enough that they're just playing basically? 
No, I have an eight-year-old and a and a six-year-old. And my eight-year-old, she's uh, she plays for Hecken um, girls football team, and she plays a bit of tennis as well. And my youngest, uh, she just turned six. She started going to these mini tennis classes as well. Um, so yeah, they have an interest in sport, but they have an interest in lot. They're in a choir. Uh, my older daughter is interested in kind of drama, that kind of thing. So they have a lot of they have an eclectic mix of. Uh, of interest my wife actually she she used to be a singer in a semi-famous band in Sweden so they get a lot of music kind of from her and sport from me so we kind of try to keep their interests broad but they from what I see they have an aptitude for sport but whether or not they ever want to take it seriously or dedicate a lot of their time to it is it's kind of up to them you know yeah, well, that's. I mean, that's the best thing you can do for them is just sort of pave the way, and then just let them decide yeah, what they exactly. want to do themselves. Because you know, you never know, and especially with tennis and football, and Hecken's a great old club down there. No plenty of people working for it, you know. And um, are you happy with your life now? When you look back over your athletics career and starting the business and that kind of thing, and end up in Gothenburg, it's not the kind of thing that a young fella grown up in Clonmel sort of thinks of instantaneously when he's fourteen or fifteen. But are you happy with where you find yourself now? Yeah, I'd say I am. I mean, Sweden. A lot of your listeners probably think the same. It's a great place to live when you have small kids. Uh, everything works, you know, the tram system, the transport, all that, uh, daycare, all of these things. So, like, I'm happy enough with, uh, you know, my family situation. The kids are doing well. The wife, you know, today she was happy. I don't know about tomorrow. You never know. You never know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the business has been a wild ride. I've learned, I've learned so much just even doing it is crazy. You know, you, you don't even speak Swedish and, and you, you're filing tax returns with the tax man, making sure you, oh man, have I messed up the numbers? You know, it's been a, a really rewarding experience to be in, to, to take an idea and build it into something and, and, you know, provide employment to people, good people, provide a service to customers. They're happy. You know what I mean? Everyone wins. Um, my sporting career, look, I probably have more regrets about that than anything else, but that's life. There's not, you know, you can't change it now. So, I mean, I'm happy enough, you know. Life in Sweden never gets too exciting, but, you know, it's never boring. So that's probably all you can hope for. I think that's like what uh, Mick McCarthy, a former Irish soccer manager, used to say, you know, never get too high and never get too low. I think they call it log om in Swedish. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's brilliant. Well, listen, I'm going to be down your way in a few weeks' time. So I'll be popping by Tom Tom's burritos there. And if you happen to meet anybody down there who's worth having on the podcast, who, who can match your tremendous performance on this podcast, let me know. But for now, Tom Chamley, thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Tom Chamley, winner of the 800 meter. What kind of race was it? Ah, uh, it was, uh, I don't know, it felt good. Like the pace went out harder than I thought it would. Usually at this, like, you could come through in 55, 56. But the guy from Lithuania made it relatively honest at 400 and I stayed on the inside and I knew that space would open up in the last 300 and luckily enough it did. I just got to 100 to go and put the boot down and pulled away. So pretty happy with that. 147, like it's pretty good. Like I'm pretty happy. There you go. That was a much younger Tom Chamley there uh, in Budapest, about 12 years ago, I think it was, uh, being interviewed after winning a race down there during his fantastic career as an 800-meter runner. Uh, a fascinating conversation, I'm sure you'll agree. And you kind of, you know, you could talk to the guy for ages, couldn't you? I mean, there's just there's so many stories there, I'm sure, about, you know, Ulf and setting up the restaurants and Dave Campbell and all these other things that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into again at a later date. Now, before I forget, I wanted to tell you that the first Swedish Irish Society event of the year is happening in Man Malmo of all places and it's happening next Sunday that is the 15th of January it's happening at Fagan's pub at one o'clock and it's a chance for everybody to get together uh, it's brilliant to see Malmo being the first one out this year it's great to see the Swedish Irish Society spreading its wings and this is all thanks to uh, Peter Miller uh, Peter's putting the whole thing together Peter got in touch with me there on Patreon uh, he drops me a message every now and again just let me know what's going on down there so you never know I might even check in with Peter next week after the event has taken place so if you're down below if you're in Malmo or in Lund or in Helsingborg or anywhere around there, one o'clock down below in Fagan's pub, get yourself down there, have a drink, have a bite to eat and meet up with the Swedish-Irish community down there. We're over the hour already, lads. First podcast of the year. We're already up over an hour. Uh, that's all that we got time for this week. Uh, where normal service has been resumed now. I'm going to be going down to Gothenburg around towards the middle. I think it's around the 24th of January. going to be heading down there. Might slip in a sneaky uh, trip up to Lulio as well. What would help me in doing those things, as I mentioned earlier on, Arrowman in Stockholm, patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. Get supporting it there, lads, and let's get this show on the road. And uh, if you do have time, 
drop in and have a listen to the global gale i know many of you have done already so it's kind of the podcasts are kind of very similar to these ones but they're more sort of like for a global audience than just the irish and sweden audience right but i'm sure you'll find many things in there that you might enjoy if you're a sports lover you'll probably enjoy the interview with cora staunton who's playing australian free rules football down below down under there so that's definitely one to get your ears into so uh, yeah as i say normal services resumed it's great to be back it's great to have you back it's great to know that you're out there and you're still enjoying these things uh, until next time take care of yourselves take care of one another and i'll be back again next week with another irish and sweden podcast good luck mm-hmm.